Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. Class Unionism, 1905. The year now drawing to a close will be memorable in the annals of labour because of the organisation of the industrial workers of the world. For 30 years I have been connected with the labour movement. All of the years of my young manhood were devoted to the work of organising my fellow workingmen that by the power of united efforts they might do something to improve their condition as workers, promote their interests as citizens, and advance their general welfare as men. There was a time when I believed that the trade union was in itself sufficient for this work. I have been compelled to revise my opinion and to conclude that something larger, more thorough and comprehensive in the way of organisation is required to meet the demands of modern times. The trade union, itself the product of industrial evolution, is subject to the laws of change and the union that may have served some purpose a quarter of a century ago is now as completely out of date as the tools of industry that were then in use. Now, I assume that most of you are more or less familiar with the history of the industrial development of the land, that you know in a general way that in the beginning of industrial society in the United States, when the tool with which work was done was a simple hand tool made and used by an individual, the average working man could look forward to the time when he might be an employer instead of an employee, that, having mastered his trade, he could grasp the few simple tools with which his work was done, virtually employ himself, own what he produced, and enjoy the fruit of his labour. At that time, one man worked for another, not in the capacity of a wage worker as we understand that term today, but simply to learn his trade, and having become the master of this, he was in a position to command most, if not all, his labour produced. It was when the simple tool of the hand labourer was supplanted by the machine and the working man lost control of the tool with which he worked, that the modern industrial revolution had its beginning. The small employer became the capitalist and the employee became the wage worker, and there began the division of society into two distinct economic classes, and we have these classes before us today, in capitalist society, fully developed. These two classes, consisting of relatively few capitalists, who own tools in the form of great machines that they did not make and that they cannot use, and of a vast army of wage workers who did make these machines and who do use them, but who do not own them. These two classes, tool owners and tool users, that is to say, masters and slaves, exploiters and exploited, to put it into perfectly plain terms, robbers and robbed, these two economic forces whose interests ceaselessly clash are pitted against each other in a mighty struggle for the mastery. It is because of this conflict of economic interests between these two classes into which modern society has been divided in the evolution of the capitalist system that we have the strike, the boycott, the lockout, the scab, the strikebreaker and slugger and countless other evils that need not be enumerated here. All of which spring from the fundamental contradiction that inheres in capitalist society. That is, the individual ownership of the social tool of production and the individual appropriation of the social product of the working class. 
Because of this, the capitalist who does no useful work has the economic power to take from a thousand or ten thousand working men all they produce over and above what is required to keep them in working and producing order, and he becomes a millionaire, perhaps a multi-millionaire. He lives in a palace in which there is music and singing and dancing and the luxuries of all climes. He sails the high seas in his private yacht. He is the reputed captain of industry, who privately owns a social utility, has great economic power, and commands the political power of the nation to protect his economic interests. He is the gentleman who furnishes the political boss, and his swarm of mercenaries with the funds with which the politics of the nation are corrupted and debauched. He is the economic master and the political ruler, and you, working men, are almost as completely at his mercy as if you were his property under the law. It is true that he has no title to your bodies, but he is the master of your jobs. He controls the employment upon which your lives depend. He has it in his power to decide whether you shall work or not. That is to say, whether you shall live or die. And the man who has the power of life and death over you, though he may not wear a crown or be hailed a king, is as completely your master and your ruler as if you were his chattels and subject to his commands under the laws of the state. What is your status as a working man today? You are not in the position of your grandfather, who could work with tools of his own, and who, when he produced something, owned it. Work is no longer done with that kind of tools. It is done with the most intricate and costly machinery, such as you have in this great steel plant here in South Chicago. That is the 20th century tool of production. Work is now done with that kind of gigantic social agencies made by you working men and used by you working men. Nobody but working men can make them. Nobody but working men can use them. You have made all these marvellous machines and now your employment, your very lives, depend upon your having access to them. But these large-grown tools, made by labour and used by labour, are not owned by labour in the capitalist system, but belong to a capitalist or group of capitalists who live in New York or some other remote point. And when it suits their pleasure, they can order their tool houses locked up and you working men locked out without consulting you and without a moment's warning. You have not a word to say. At such a time, it is useless for you to leave here and look for work elsewhere. For when this mill closes down, so do others. You are out of employment and you begin to suffer, and most of you don't know what the trouble is. You only know that you are no longer wanted at the mill, that workers are a drug on the market. With these wonderful tools with which you now work, every few years you have produced so much that all of the markets at home and abroad are glutted, and the capitalists cannot sell what you have produced in such abundance, and so stop their machinery, shut up their mills, lock out their hands, and paralyse industry. And there you are, idle, helpless, hungry, hopeless, desperate. And these conditions will come upon you and become worse, no matter how well you are organised in your several trade unions. And this will continue as long as you working men allow the idle capitalists to own and control the tools of industry. Has it ever occurred to you working men that if you could make these tools and use them, you can also own them and produce wealth in plenty for yourselves? The old trade union is organised on the basis of the identity of interests of capitalists and wage workers and spends its time and devotes its energies to harmonising these two classes. And it is a vain and hopeless task. 
When these interests can be even temporarily harmonized, it is always in the interest of the capitalist class and at the expense of the working class. Most capitalists heartily approve the old form of trade unionism and encourage and liberally support it for the very reason that this outgrown unionism does not truly represent and cannot actually express the economic interests of the working class. The simple fact is that industrial conditions have undergone such a complete change that now the trade union, instead of uniting the workers, divides them, incites craft jealousy, breeds dissension and promotes strife. The very thing capitalists desire. For so long as the working class is divided, the capitalists will be secure in their dominion of the earth and the seas and the millions of toilers will remain in subjection. Now, let me see if I can make myself perfectly clear upon this important point. In the railroad service, there are various organisations of employees. Some of the departments are pretty thoroughly organised. The engineers, the firemen, conductors, brakemen, switchmen, telegraphers and some others are organised in their several craft unions. They have repeatedly tried to federate these organisations so as to bring them into harmonious alliance with each other, but every such attempt has failed. The selfish spirit of craft autonomy, that is, the jealousy of each particular branch to organise itself, establish its own petty supremacy and look out for itself, has made it impossible to federate these organisations. The members of these brotherhoods have increasing grievances and try to have them adjusted in the old way. The railroad corporations are always shrewd enough to enter into contractual relations with unions representing two or three or four departments, so that in every emergency they can always control these departments, while refusing increases, making reductions, or discharging without cause employees in other departments of the service. It has not been long ago since the Union Telegraph operators on the Missouri, Kansas and Texas directed their committee to call on the railroad officials for a small wage concession that had been granted by other systems. But the company, having contracts with its engineers and firemen, conductors and brakemen, peremptorily refused the request of the telegraphers, and about 1,300 of them went out on strike, quit the service of the company as a union to enforce their demands. What was the result? This large body of union working men who thus went out on strike to enforce a righteous claim all lost their jobs, every one of them. It was only a short time after they struck that I happened to go over the system. I met the strikers at various points and they told me the story of their defeat by their own fellow employees who belonged to other unions. I understood it all before they told me. When the operators went out, all the others remained at their posts, doing their usual work and hauling and delivering scabs wherever they were needed to fill the places vacated by their fellow workers and fellow craft unionists. Union engineers and conductors took their train orders from scab operators. All the union men stood loyally by the company in its attack on one of their number, and so the operators were routed and scattered to the four winds and their union wiped from the system. Here we have a perfect illustration of craft unionism in action. Another example is furnished by the Santa Fe system, where but a few months ago the union machinists went out from one end of the system to the other. The engineers and firemen, conductors and brakemen, and all the rest of them holding union cards, remained faithfully at work until a new set of machinists was employed and broken in, and now everything is running as smoothly as before. 
Still another case of recent date is that of the Great Northern and Northern Pacific systems, where the telegraph operators, after having failed in securing an adjustment of their grievances, went out on strike in a body, under orders from their union. What happened there? Just what had happened on the MK and T. The engineers, firemen, conductors and brakemen continued at their posts and discharged their duties with fidelity, while their brother unionists, the operators, were mowed down and their places filled with scabs. It is this that is taking place before our eyes every day. Here in Chicago, you have witnessed the crushing defeat of one regiment after another of the Army of Organized Labor. Indeed, during the last two or three years, all the great strikes have failed. There has not been a single exception to relieve the rule, not one. Now, when you see such things as these, when you see working men in craft unions go out on strike again and again and meet with constant defeat, does it not occur to you that there is something wrong with that kind of unionism? That that kind of unionism can be improved upon? Doesn't it occur to you that instead of fighting the capitalist enemy, who are always united, who always act together, that instead of fighting them by companies and regiments, the thing for us to do is to fight them as they fight us, with a united army? In this respect, if no other, we may well profit by the example set by the enemy. They unite because they are conscious of their interests as a class. When the Teamsters struck in this city last summer, the bankers subscribed $50,000 to defeat them. Now the Teamsters were not striking against the bankers, but the Teamsters were striking against the capitalist class, and the bankers rushed loyally to the support of their class. And this brings an important fact to our attention, and that is that the struggle in which we are engaged today is a class struggle. And labour unionism, to be of any real value to the working class, must be organised not along craft lines but along class lines. The industrial workers is a working class organisation, so all-inclusive, so comprehensive, that it will embrace every man and woman who does useful work for a livelihood. Certain departments have been established and certain subdivisions have been made so that the identity of the trade, the autonomy of the craft, may be preserved within the organisation. Joining the industrial workers, you take your place in your proper department. That department, which represents your employment, is organised. It has control of craft interests within its jurisdiction, so that, as so far as craft autonomy is concerned, it adjusts itself within the general organisation. Suppose you join the industrial workers as a switchman. You belong to the transportation department. You have a grievance as a switchman and the switchmen have charge of that grievance. The switchmen, organised in their respective department, having supervision of their craft affairs, seek to adjust that grievance. If they fail then, instead of having to rely upon the switchman alone in the support of that grievance, as now happens, they can call to their aid not only all the switchmen, but the firemen, the conductors, the brakemen and engineers. They can call to their aid the boilermakers, the machinists and the blacksmiths, the shopmen and yardmen and officemen. And, if it becomes necessary, they can command the combined support of all the organised workers of that entire system. This is the kind of unionism that is required to deal effectively with the industrial situation of today. Now, I am well aware that there is tremendous opposition to this organisation. I know that upon every hand you hear it said that we already have plenty of organisations in the field and that if they are not right, we ought to set them right instead of starting a new one. 
This kind of reasoning may have some effect with the unthinking, but if you are a student of this great question, you know that it is historically impossible for an old and outgrown and out-of-date labour organisation to adapt itself to a new economic situation. Reform unions rarely, if ever, become revolutionary bodies. It is admitted that there are thousands of unions in the field. These unions all have staffs of officers whose names are legion and on the payroll. They all draw salaries and expense money. They don't want the working class united. That would mean an army of jobless leaders. You would be amazed if you knew how many of such union officials there are, and you would be still more amazed if you knew the aggregate amount of salary and expenses, millions of dollars, they draw every year. Now they, like you, are looking out for their jobs. It is perhaps too much to expect them to discharge themselves. It is to their personal interest to keep the workers of that country divided into a thousand different organisations, so that a thousand different sets of officials will be required. So that a thousand sets of officials may draw salary from the scant wages of the working class. You may be told that the reason I am in favour of a new union is that I am a discredited labour leader and that I am trying to create a new job for myself. The truth is that if I had been inclined to serve the corporations instead of the workers, I could have been in a high official position all these years. I could have been drawing a large salary and enjoying to the full the popularity of what is miscalled successful labour leadership. You railroad men know that the late PM Arthur, Grand Chief of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, was called by the capitalist press a very successful labour leader. He was successful only in the sense that he served with far greater fidelity the corporations than he did the employees who paid his salary. I can remember the time when most of the present grand officers of the Railroad Brotherhoods denounced Mr Arthur of the Engineers because of his conservative and reactionary policy. All of these grand officers occupy today precisely the same position that he did and which they condemned. They are now just as acceptable to the railroads as was Mr Arthur. These corporations not only do not object to, but actually favour the leaders of these brotherhoods. In fact, the corporation officials find these organisations very serviceable to them, and they would far rather have them than not. They could wipe them out, and they would if they were a menace to them, but they will not do it. A little thing occurred the other day which will prove what I say. I do not know whether you happen to be aware of it, but the Brotherhood of Engineers and the Brotherhood of Firemen on the Northern Pacific a few weeks ago clashed in the matter of jurisdiction, and that matter is becoming more and more a plague to craft unionism. The grand officers of the two brotherhoods met at St Paul, and they had quite a heated controversy, which had a most sensational climax. Grand Chief Warren Stone of the Engineers hotly declaring to Grand Master Hanahan of the Firemen that if it came to a showdown, the engineers would remain at their posts and if the firemen went out on strike, the engineers would stay with the corporation and defeat the firemen. Now, the general manager of the Northern Pacific, had he been so inclined, could have encouraged these two craft unions to clash and wipe each other from the system. But the railway official was too wise to allow this to be done. He kindly interceded and told them that they ought not to quarrel with each other, that they should in truth love each other, and so he succeeded in saving the unions and restoring harmonious relations. The general manager appreciated the value of craft organisation and proposed to preserve it for future use. Note again 
The railroads grant annual passes to all the grand officers of these several organisations. Why? Because they love you railroad employees? Not at all, but because they are wise enough to understand their interests as corporations, as capitalists. So you find that the grand officers of craft unions ride free over the railroads, and when the several brotherhoods hold their conventions, they are provided with free trains and pullman cars and transported to the convention city and back again, free of charge. This is one of the best investments the railroad could make. It costs them very little to furnish the delegates with free transportation, and every penny of it comes out of your earnings. They know that as you are now organised, you can do little for yourselves, but that you can do much for them. That is why they are so partial to the old organisations. Let me point out one of the ways they use you when they need you. President Roosevelt is championing a measure that is to empower the Interstate Commerce Commission to fix the rates of railroads in certain cases. This measure is opposed by the railroad corporations. They do not want the government to interfere with their right to fix rates to suit themselves. What do they do? They send for the grand chiefs of the several brotherhoods and a conference is held. Then the press dispatches announce that the railroad and brotherhood officials are one in their opposition to the proposed rate-fixing legislation. A few days later, a joint session is held of the standing committees of the several brotherhoods and they decide to stand by the railroads. And so they call upon President Roosevelt and serve notice upon him that they and the unions they represent are opposed to rate legislation. In this, the unions appear for the railroads, the brotherhoods being the puppets of the corporations, and in the meantime, the railroad magnates announce through the press that the employees are up in arms and will assert the political power of their unions in opposition to the rate-fixing measure. Not that there is anything of interest in rate legislation so far as you are concerned, but there is a vital point involved. When the railroads find it necessary to use the Brotherhood as breastworks or as weapons with which to fight their battles, they issue their orders and the grand officers and unions fall in line to the tune of our interests are mutual and we must stand together. The unions then are made the active allies of the corporations in robbing and defying the people. It is just because the corporations find these organisations exceedingly useful that they make petty concessions to them. I recognised this fact a number of years ago and concluded then that what was needed for the employees was a real working class union embracing them all. The American Railway Union was organised. There are those present who were in the Great Strike of 1894, and you know how bitterly we were fought by the railroad corporations. You remember that they were not satisfied with merely defeating us, and they never would have beaten us had they not been in control of the government. But for this, victory would have been won for the working class. They were defeated completely, and when they realised this, they had their 4,200 thugs and thieves and convicts sworn in as deputy United States Marshals, and they incited the riots and led the mobs, and then the courts issued their injunctions, while the capitalist press flashed the lurid reports over the wires that Chicago was at the mercy of a mob. The rest followed as a matter of course. But they were not satisfied with mere defeat of the strike. They must crush the life out of the union. For two years after I was released by the courts, after being 18 months in their custody, I was followed by their detectives to prevent reorganisation, and those who were reported as joining, or even as being friendly, were instantly discharged. They defeated us, but they didn't vanquish us. We are stronger today than we ever were, and we are coming again.
We are on the main track. We are not after a few pennies more a day this time. We are after the whole works. Yes, for two years after I was finally released, they followed me from one end of the country to the other. They kept their detectives at my heels. And the order preceded me everywhere that the employees who had anything to do with Debs would be discharged. I concluded to go into those sections where the American Railway Union had not been organised and where there had been no strike, and I started south. When I reached Louisville, the morning paper contained a press dispatch with startling headlines reporting a series of resolutions passed by the railroad employees of that section, saying, Whereas we are advised that E.V. Debs, the anarchist of Chicago, is on his way south to disrupt the pleasant and harmonious relations that exist between the railroad employees and the companies. Therefore, be it resolved that we hereby serve notice on said anarchist Debs, that we repudiate him and that we will have nothing to do with him nor the anarchist organization he represents. After these resolutions appeared, I had a number of letters from the poor slaves who were employed upon these railroads, apologising for the resolutions and saying that the railroad officials had prepared the resolutions and had submitted them to the employees for their signatures and then given them to the press. But even this was not sufficient. They discharged those who attended our meetings. They had their special men at the doors of meeting places to take the names of those who attended. They were determined to stamp out the last spark of the Union's life. And they did succeed in destroying the organisation, but they could not kill the spirit of the American Railway Union. That still lives. And now a far greater organisation has come to take its place, as much greater as the American Railway Union was greater than the old Union, and that organisation is the Industrial Workers of the World. This great union is organised on the basis of the class struggle. It makes its appeal to the intelligence of the working class. It commands you working men to open your eyes and see for yourselves, to use your brains and think for yourselves, to cultivate self-reliance and depend upon yourselves. That is your only safety. You have been taught in the old union school to look to some leader, to depend upon some master. You have been trained to submit, to follow and obey orders. You have not developed your own capacity for clear thinking. You are lacking in the essentials of sturdy manhood. Many of you have become satisfied to blindly follow where others lead, and so you are often deceived, betrayed, and when the smoke of battle clears away, you find yourself defeated and out of jobs. You have often felt disheartened. You have quit the union in despair and disgust, and some of you have turned into scabs. Thousands who once belonged to unions have become not only non-union men, but scabs and strikebreakers, and in their desperation have turned upon the union and become its most bitter enemies. If you will call the role of the strikebreakers who gather here in Chicago and elsewhere when union workers are out on strike, you will find that nearly all of them are ex-union men, men who once wore the badge of union labour, believed in it, and marched proudly beneath the union banner. What do you think of a unionism that creates an army for its own overthrow? There is something fundamentally wrong with that kind of unionism. Long since, and after years of study and experience, I became convinced that the old unions were not fit to cope successfully with the enemy of the working class, and that a new organisation was an imperative necessity. In the industrial workers, we have a union large enough to embrace us all, 
a union organized upon democratic principles, recognizing the equal rights of all and extending its benefits equally to all. Industrial unionism is the principle upon which the industrial workers is organized. This means actual unity of purpose and action. It means the economic solidarity of our class. It means that the grievance of one is the concern of all, and that from this time forward, craft division is to be eliminated, and that we are to get together and fight and win together for all. Industrial unionism means that such a plant as you have here in South Chicago, in which 10 or 12,000 men are employed, shall be thoroughly and efficiently organized. What is the condition there today? You have innumerable unions represented there, but no unity. You have this great body of workers parceled out among scores of petty and purposeless unions, which are in ceaseless conflict with each other, jealous to preserve their craft identity. As long as this great army of workers is scattered among so many craft unions, it would be impossible for them to unite and act in harmony together. Craft unionism is the negation of class solidarity. The more unions you have, the less unity. And here, in fact, you have no unity at all. In this state, you can do nothing to improve your working condition. You are substantially at the mercy of the corporations. What you need is industrial unionism, and you will have it when you get together in the industrial workers.